if we look back to, say, the GFC and the Labor government handing out $42 billion to kickstart the Australian economy, like, don't freak out, spend the money. And you had very strange people on Talkback Radio going, oh, I saw people spending it all on beer and a TV. And I'm like, awesome. That's exactly what they were meant to do. <laughs> Keep the economy going. So the benefit of paying people money no matter what is the benefit of continuing to grease the wheels mm. of the machine. Consumption. Yeah. And consumption is what makes everything go round. Well, if you're in a capitalist system. I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. Thank you, Tim. That's good. We also have a very special guest, Sam Burt. How are you, Sam? I'm all right. How are you, Tim? (laughs) I'm doing very well. That was very smooth. Now, we've got you in today because you're somewhat of an economics specialist and we were going to bring you in to talk about something we can't even agree on the name of. (laughs) We've already had an argument about, well, discussion maybe, about what it's called. Um, Well, it started serious and ended up with me being a (laughs) five-year-old. So basic income guarantee, what would you prefer to call it? Uh, I was introduced to it as the universal basic income, Mm. but... I think uh, big has a certain... Uh, uh, Bigness to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to return to being a five-year-old and go, UB1 Kenobi, it yes. wins. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to our cover art artist. Thank Josh. you, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sam, so can you tell us a little bit about what a basic income guarantee or a universal basic income is? Yeah. So it's basically the idea that, especially in uh, first world developed nations, that there should be basically a floor to how poor someone can be. So it's the idea that the government should provide a minimum income to all of its citizens. Um, This comes in a number of different forms. Some people say that everyone should get the income, so everyone gets, depends on what number you decide, 12,000 a year as a floor. Other people say that everyone earning below 12,000 should have that topped up with a tax credit or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm The first bit that you said sounds the most important bit. It's that you have a floor that only allows people to be a certain level of poor. Is that the idea? Mm, yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, so there are like a couple of proponents of it. I think the big one at the moment is Rucker Bregman. But the guy who I originally saw talking about was Philip Van Paris. Mm-hmm. And he said that it was more of an idea of the way to meet Article 25 of the UN Human Rights Declaration, mm-hmm. which is everyone has a right to a standard of adequate living for health and well-being of himself mm. or his family. So it taps into the human security ideas of the 1990s, mm. that if you want proper security for a society, you have to have fundamental human security. And this is where this idea that it is the political system that decide we're going to do this. No, a society would decide to do basic income guarantee. A society would decide that they want no one to suffer beyond a certain point and everyone to have a financial underpinning to make more meaning and more safety possible. Mm. So it can be sold in strict economic terms, which, again, Sam, as an enthusiast on the topic and an economic student, I assume he'll probably lean more towards the economic argument, but I'm going to keep counterbalancing with it's actually a social decision that a society has to tell its politicians it wants because we value people feeling safe and having a foundation that allows them to have choice because that allows them to have more meaning and safety. So I guess the first concern that pops into mind 
is you're going to have quite a few people in society who claim that there will be funding other people to do effectively nothing. That's the scare, I would say. Not a, a concern that I share, but... No, and that's the, we can all agree that that's a legit concern because people think it's a legit concern hmm. and yet all the evidence from you know, Canada in the 70s... You know, this is something that President Nixon tried, a hard-boiled Republican, wow. and was in favour of, and if he hadn't been impeached, was going to try and implement. So when you have a hard-boiled Republican saying, basic income guarantee, better than not... Mm. that's a big deal. Yeah, and basic income guarantee is one of those weird things that kind of has different poles among the political spectrum. So you've got, I think Hillary Clinton was originally tossing it up whether or not to have it in her platform at the 2016 election. Richard Nixon actually proposed it to the House and I think it was knocked down by the Democrats because it wasn't big enough at the time. Which is ridiculous, a bit like the Greens here scuttling the carbon price. It wasn't far enough. Mm. Would you rather a gain or to remain nowhere? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Throwing a hissy fit. You know, if I can't get what I want, I won't play the game at all. Now, who is it here that's actually put big on their agenda? Is it the Greens that say they want to bring it into the parliamentary debate? Yeah, I think it was in the Greens platform. Yeah. And there's... The lecturer at the University of Adelaide who's really pushing it hard uh, is a bit of a undergrad favourite, at least in Stephen Howell, as he's very entertaining, but he's got a very complicated new macroeconomic setup that provides, you know, foundations of how to get it into the budget, more or less. <laughs> so the whole point, he's come up with the macro idea that not necessarily would, or well, I'm certainly not going to have the maths to understand, I'm not going to speak for Tim, but we'd probably be asking you, Sam, to then explain that macro policy later, being believers in the idea, but not sufficiently mathematically competent in my case <laughs> to determine whether it actually works within a budget. Yeah, and if I had four and a half hours to talk about it, then maybe it would be um, something which would be easy to explain. But Okay, so the four and a half hour rule. Anything that takes four and a half hours is... Well, it's like the classic thing with the GST where John Hewson had to try and explain what would happen if you were buying a cake with icing. And that was the end of the GST. One interview. And if people haven't seen it, go find it. You know, John Hewson not being able to explain what the implications of a GST would be on a cake. That was essentially the kiss of death for it in the early 90s. Wow. 1990 or 1993 election. Yep. 1990. So what you realise is one of the biggest enemies of big, well, two enemies, one we've already touched on and now this one, is the perception that people are lazy slobs and will take free money. (laughs) And two, that we won't understand it, so how could we possibly vote for it? So what we need to do is, you know, counter both things. So when the tests were done in Canada and the US and the interesting tests that have been done in the UK of just giving homeless people money, no strings attached. In Utah, giving homeless people accommodation paid for by the state, no strings attached. I think Stockton's also currently experimenting with basic income in the US. Okay. And we've got the Finnish experiment. The first round of the experiment is only just coming to an end now and the data's looking fairly good. The reality of this is, and we can even do a different episode on this, listeners, if you're not convinced... But the most humans don't want to sit on the couch doing nothing. (laughs) They want to get up and contribute. They want to feel meaningful. Mm. They want to feel engaged. They want to feel socially connected and valuable, which means you give them a little bit of money, 
they tend to go and do something. So in the Canadian example, more people did art, more people got involved in volunteering, more people helped out at their kids' primary school, more people did things that were socially beneficial, did not have a definite clear dollar value, but had an overt social capital value. When we talk about people doing nothing, we seem to get very angry about people who are kind of, let's say, taking advantage of the system. But I, th- I think the answer to that is kind of in the question itself in some respect that these people are literally doing nothing and you're getting angry about them doing nothing. When, let's say that if we take your point, they're not actually doing nothing, but the perception is that they're doing nothing. Mm. And instead of getting angry at people who are doing bad things, we decide to get angry, angry at people, people doing nothing. Neutral. And yet if we're giving people money and that allows them to sit on the couch, play Xbox and eat pizza, mm. and they're not robbing us, yes, I see that as a win. Absolutely. Yes, so Sam, that's Sam can that be quantified? <laughs> that if you use social welfare, you're actually minimising crime? Has anyone done those stats uh, to support big that you're aware of? I do not know about that in particular, but going back to the idea that if you were to give someone a basic income, they'd sit around and do nothing is really interesting. Because if I were to ask Tim what David would do if I gave David a, a income to do nothing, sure, you'd it's kind of a gut instinct that people have is that, well, if you give somebody else a guaranteed income, they're not going to do anything because they're, you know, set. But if I were to ask you what you would do, you'd say, oh, well, I might throw more I, more of my time into making this podcast. I could start another podcast. I've got all these ideas that I want to do and that security would just give me options. So it's the uh, whole NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. Mm, the perception yeah. changes dramatically, whether it's you being asked or you being asked about another person. Yeah. And when they did the studies in Canada, I believe, there was only two parts of the population that actually showed that they worked less. Overall, there was an increase in employment because people were doing other things. But the two groups of people who worked less were new mothers who would take more time off for parental care. Which is a social benefit. Yeah. And now it might be new mothers and fathers, given that there are changing perceptions around that from the 70s. And also it's among young males. That decrease in employment also coincided with an increase in graduation. So there were more young males taking time out where they might have had to enter the workforce to finish high school, finish university, get more education and build human capacity. And just think the difference we'll make now where so many young people in Australia are meant to go to uni because you've been told it's your future and yet the clear link from uni to the workforce is less clear by the year. And yet how many people are having to do slightly less than a full-time load because of all the part-time work? How many people are getting 10% less for subjects than they could if they weren't exhausted? I have a friend who is working four jobs at the moment because she's living on her own and hates the idea that her parents will have to stump the money to support her. Yeah. So and yet what's it doing to her degree? Or is she just burning herself out to get it done at a high level? Uh, I reckon burnout's probably more likely than... Yeah. So in order to get the kind of things that will leave the door open, she's exhausting herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all right, we can do that for a while, but do we want that to be how people start their adult lives, already feeling wrecked by the process of just making opportunities for themselves? Mm-hmm. How does that end in a good society? And the idea that somebody who is getting... Again, throw out a number. It really depends on the policy. That the idea who's living on a subsistence wage is satisfied with that 
kind of inherently implies that there's no like desire to better one's condition. It's the idea that substance is enough and that there's, you know, nothing that would, is currently stopping them from moving upwards. Yeah, but in the whole satisfier maximizer argument, there are a group of people who, as long as they have the fundamentals covered, they can be quite satisfied because the things they value don't take money, they take time. And that group of people, why do we want them suffering? Why do we want them having turned to crime? Why not just fund that tiny group of people to go, actually, this is all I need. And this would be enough foundations for me to be no more burden on society than anyone else, but also, you know, no kind of social or criminal problem. Mm. Even for the people that don't want to achieve anything, really, is there that big a problem? And then we get into the whole bigger idea of, okay, we're already seeing, you know, robots cooking meals, robots delivering food, you know, car production. You know, humans are only going to be necessary to plug in the fiddly little cables to put the wiring in for the stereo. What are we going to do with all the people who don't have meaningful work? Hmm. Well, there's the always cited uh, Frayne Osborne study out of Cambridge that said that 47% of the population is between 70% and 100% chance of robots being able to do their job which yeah again lots of people have pointed out that there are potentially problems in that survey but but still we're going to get closer and closer to that number every year and this idea that everyone can be a creative we are there's a standard joke with podcasts mm-hmm. two guys in a microphone a podcast <laughs> but it's not really true because there's podcasts that have one episode and then die <laughs> and there's ones that go on please let ours be one that goes on yeah. um, but the idea that everyone somehow is going to suddenly become a creative. No. <laughs> some people are really creative. Some people are a little bit creative. Some people enjoy one day of being creative a week mm. because it balances their world and their mind and their sense of self. But being told, no, every day you've got to be creative. Well, then that's not going to be a positive because it's, it's a forced thing. Whereas at least with big, it's this thing of, well, I could give something productive or creative or a combo a go. The idea too, and you know, this is something because it's only been tested, we don't have any final data on, getting rid of the majority of people involved in social security because they're now irrelevant. Someone just gets their money. They don't have to turn up. They don't have to have an interview. You don't have to hound them. You don't have to feel like you're an enemy of the state by turning up to Centrelink. <laughs> And that goes to the idea of the undeserving versus the deserving poor and the effort and money that's required to distinguish between the two. A, not sure that you necessarily need to have that big of a focus on it and B, the gain that you have from spending all the money to make sure that the people who don't deserve the money don't get the money is more. Well, I'm going to spin that differently. Do most of the people working at Centrelink deserve to have power over other people's lives? Mm. Are they well equipped to be able to instill fear and uncertainty in vulnerable people? I'm guessing no. After having friends and my own experiences with that system, sometimes they're not even well equipped. And I don't want to disparage. No, this is not attacking sentiment people. It's saying that if you're in a role where you have to do with people who feel vulnerable and feel threatened and are likely to lash out, It's like becoming a police officer or a nurse. You're suddenly dealing with people on their worst day. Mm. A lot of people working in 
the social security system in something like Centrelink here in Australia are dealing with people under too much pressure, feeling threatened and feeling the rug might be pulled out from under them. Mm. Are people really equipped that that is their career? And there are so many parts to that whole system. Our entire welfare system is so complex that are people being trained well enough to understand every like the minutiae of how to apply broad policy to specific individuals? Yeah, and do they are they empowered to have a bit of flexibility in the application? Yes. From the horror stories, no. And again, that is going to be detrimental to their well-being to be the people that have to keep saying no to mm. people who feel vulnerable. That's it. So really taking another vulnerability out of life for those that feel you know, vulnerable and those that have to deal with people who are feeling threatened has to be a social good. Mm. Now, I don't want to work at Centrelink because I don't want to be the one that says no to people and deal with the psychological consequences of having to take that on board five days a week. And so the idea of the, the universal income would be that everyone would just get it. You wouldn't have to worry yeah, about no management no. system, just a mm. basic, hi, you're a human, you're a citizen, tick. And so the question is, do you always get it even when you're employed? Like does it decrease in terms of, I suppose it's individual policy. but Yeah, that's really a kind of a fundamental cornerstone that you do keep getting it when you're employed. I see, yeah. Again, depending on the system, whether or not you have universal basic income or uh, negative income taxes, I think is the other way that I've heard it talked, is the idea that, amongst other things, the way that our current welfare system's created is that you get to a point where if you're offered either short-term work or insecure work, there's actually an incentive for you to stay on the welfare as is as compared to getting the job because especially if there's a delay between mm-hmm. getting the uh, finishing work and getting the welfare, it gets to a point where if I can take a job for six months and then not sure if I'm going to have a job after that, my you know ef- effective tax rate, which is a boring economics way of looking at the problem, but it jumps from being you know, relatively flat or negative to currently skyrocketing when you have to account the money that I'm losing from not getting the welfare and also the money that I have to pay back in tax. And then once you get over that, it goes back down. But getting over that jump is a a disincentive for people to get off welfare. So the system says your job has just ended, but we see how much money you earned. So we're not going to pay you anything for 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Good luck not starving. Yeah. Which is what happens to so many students who manage to get short contracts at the end of their degrees, Mm. but nothing that lasts. And uh, again, how much fun is it living on a yo-yo, going up and down between there's money, yeah, but I've paid so much of it in tax. And again, tax is totally legit and you'll get it back next year. But if there's nothing to help you deal with the gap between income and no income before the next contract, and in a gig economy where the gaps are going to be normal, what kind of stress levels do we want society to have? How ruthlessly competitive do we want society to be? If we look back to, say, the GFC and the Labor government handing out $42 billion to kickstart the Australian economy, like, don't freak out, spend the money. And you had, you know, very strange people on Talkback Radio going, oh, I saw people spending it all on beer and a TV. And I'm like, awesome. That's exactly what they were meant to do. (laughs) Keep the economy going. So the benefit of paying people money no matter what is the benefit of continuing to grease the wheels Mm. of the machine. Consumption. 
Yeah. And consumption is what makes everything go round well, if you're in a capitalist system. So anything that is deleterious to consumption is deleterious to the continuation of the system. Now, that's not to say capitalism is perfect and mm-hmm. consumption is awesome, but it's the system we've got and even if we want to revise it or refine it or consume more ethically or intelligently, we're still going to be consumers and that's still going to be the biggest driver of social confidence and social cohesion. And we've talked a little bit about conscious capitalism before. Yeah, so it's not that there's not good models. Mm. I guess, yeah, the, the next kind of question is how much would it be? Like how, how do you define what is you know, um, in line with Article 25? cost of utilities in different countries is like quite variable so obviously it would have to be on a country or state by state basis even Mm -hmm. and that's really kind of the biggest unknown is that whilst there are these small scale tests Mm. it it will depend on the legislation it depends how much the pay is it depends Mm. how much how regularly the payments come depends what you think is a livable subsistence in that country Mm. and there are also, there's also the idea that there's going to be some distortionary effects. So a, an argument which isn't quite right that comes up a lot is if you give everyone $1,000 a month, what's the landlord's incentive not to just to raise rent by $1,000 a month? Mm. And that isn't quite right because technically we're in under consumption and there's a bunch of economic factors, but there is going to be some distortionary effect there where prices will raise and there'll be an adjustment period. And so it's very hard to quantify. Right, because mm. everyone's a little bit richer. The, mm. the suppliers, I suppose, can afford to jack prices up. But then yeah. because it's going to be a consistent amount of money going round, you've also got an environment in which competing to get more market share is more beneficial because people have more money. So the irony is initially, yes, everything gets slightly dearer mm. until everyone realises this money is always flowing. And that with the money always flowing, there is a reason to be more competitive and more effective. Mm. And also this thing of it would change potentially how people are employed. We know at the moment that we're in the strange situation of too many full-time Australians are doing too long a week. Too many Australians working part-time aren't getting enough hours to have the kind of independent lives where they've got real choices in what they can do because they can save to plan and, and do things in the future. But if that person on not enough hours has the extra money, they start planning for the life they want rather than hanging on by a fingernail. Mm. People doing the ridiculous extra hours, you know, someone in their family could say, why are you doing a 50-hour week? What's the point? Let someone else do another eight hours. So the potential for starting to move people to something nearer equilibrium of, you know, if you want to work hard, fine, but you'd have to work that hard. If you want to do enough work to be okay, you can. Mm. That the potential to balance up there from underemployment and you know, too many hours, which is becoming the Australian norm, mm. is really interesting and under-investigated because the places that have tested this so far, places like Finland, are already really sensible about length of the work week. They don't want people doing stupid nearly 50-hour weeks. Because it takes work away from someone else. Precisely. Mm. You know, the whole point of moving to a seven-day work week What's its benefit other than making sure there's work in the quote-unquote service industry for all of us to use our free time and spare cash? Mm. So part of this is in a world where the robot's going to make it, we need to be off entertaining ourselves. 
so it leaves potential to move to like a very different week as well. Like what, what, like we could societally change to a three day weekend. Yeah. Potentially. Which for most people would be massively beneficial to deal with stress. Oh yeah. Yeah. Imagine what it'd be like for kids actually seeing their parents regularly. Yes. Yeah. I suppose that that would, the only problem with the three day weekend would be, it would ruin probably school a little bit, education. Yeah, but for the French for, you know, for decades, Wednesday isn't a school day, it's grandparent day. Interesting. And, you know, almost a century ago now, Keynes, who's quite a famous uh, economist, predicted that there was going to be a 15 hour work week that would be required because, you know, as we run out of things to produce and things to make, then people need to scale back so everybody can have some work. And he didn't predict the fact that we'd all up our consumption massively. Yeah. But it's been a prediction of economists long t- for a long time that we're going to scale back the amount that we actually work. Wow. What, what about like required community service for basic income? Is that that's something that is discussed a lot? You know, let's say you have to do 10 hours of community service a week or... The thing with basic income is that it... No strings. Yeah. Exactly. That there's yeah. unconditional. Okay. This, this does come from the fact that the universal basic income to some extent or another is usually pushed by the left or right libertarians who like the idea that you give people the opportunity to do what they want. And there is kind of the, the idea that you don't necessarily require people to do community service. But if you give people more time to do what they want, then it means that instead of having to put in extra hours because you're worried that, you know, you're not going to make enough money, that you can volunteer with the course that you used to volunteer with that you have a passion in, but you Mm -hmm. haven't had time to do. Mm. Or you can look after older relatives or engage more with other areas of your family. I see. So part of it, you know, could be that at uni now the expectation you'll do an internship and you won't do enough days to really understand the industry you're going into <laughs> and you'll be juggling that with uni and work, which means something's going to suffer probably uni. Imagine a world where you've got the income, you can do the internship properly because it's the industry you want to go into. You could keep doing something volunteer related to it right the way through uni to pad out your CV, have better references and actually know you want to be in that area. Mm. So, you know, if you want to go down the medical path, you could be volunteering in a hospital one day a week all the way through uni because you're not flat out working at KFC every night. (laughs) Uh, How much of a difference would that make to people knowing why they're studying, knowing why they should remember stuff? It's interesting you say it comes from left and right libertarians because it certainly seems from the outset that you were mentioning the Greens were the people who were fighting for this in Australia, so they're quite like a leftist party. Like, yeah. It's interesting that it also comes from the right. I'm interested to hear more about that. Well, the last time that it had a big following, it was in the 60s and 70s, where, as David's already mentioned, Richard Nixon proposed it. And then I think I've seen that people have already said that Martin Luther King was also suggesting it was happening at the same time. Mm. So it's attractive to people more to the left of the spectrum because it's an egalitarian idea. It's making sure that there's kind of a flaw and that people are looked after and it's compassionate in that way. Um, And it's attractive more to people on the right end of the spectrum because it is a way of 
limiting the size of the government almost, mm. whilst it would expand the government probably in the idea of you know, accruing taxes and spending money, it limits it in the idea that they don't, they're not prying into your yeah, life. the state doesn't have power over you. So mm. we've got to distinguish here very clearly between a conservative right and a libertarian right. Mm. You know, conservative rights are all about repeating yesterday because they liked it. The libertarian right is always imagining a better world where they believe absolutely in the individual's potential to pull themselves up and achieve whatever. But the biggest thing that impacts on that is don't interfere with that individual. So ironically, the libertarian right, like the conservative right, has foundations in religion. That, you know, these are very you know, connected to religion people, but they see religion in very different ways. The conservative right sees it as a way to keep a population docile. The libertarian right in America in particular sees that you have an obligation to look after your society because you will have a much nicer life living in a society where no one you know, needs to steal anything from you. Mm. So the libertarian right, libertarian is one of those words, it, we've sort of lost <laughs> the sense of it being a, a positive thing instead it's starting to look like you just want a free wheel. No, this is not freewheeling. This is people with very strong, solid moral compasses. That doesn't mean we're going to necessarily agree with that moral compass. But this is not, this is not nihilism. This is not <laughs> chaos. This is people saying, you should have your own moral compass. I should not dictate to you via the state. It's funny you can look up, Jonathan Haidt talks about that, the moral roots of liberals and conservatives. Yeah. yeah, and the moral roots are exactly the same, just in, as all things, perverted through experience. So, you know, to put it in current context, the Swiss, who are a very conservative nation, have already had one vote on big. Now, th they voted no at the moment, but they are a very rich country, very successful, very independent, and they already viewed that this is important enough that they've already had one full debate and one vote. And when it didn't pass, you know, they didn't say this has gone forever, they just said not now, because they recognise that more and more things in Switzerland will be done by machines, that there will be less meaningful work for people to do, that people need opportunities, and that the Swiss absolutely hate the state interfering in people's lives. Mm. The state is there to do the bare minimum to allow society to function, you know, with a system and infrastructure that works. The Swiss don't want the state to do much more. What would something like this cost? Is there any kind of estimates that tax would go up? And you can take your time to answer that. <laughs> well, the way that Bergman puts it is less about a number um, and more of a percentage. Yeah, which is yeah, kind of what I was hoping for. That's good. Because we have quite a high tax rate in Australia, whereas somewhere like America, it's you know, obviously it's state by state as well. But mm. you know, if we're taxed at something like forty percent, they have like two percent. <laughs> neither but then everything's falling down there. So it's yeah. an indication why if you don't have tax. Also, yeah. neither Australia neither Australia nor the US are too bad. The Scandinavian countries which mm. do much better for equality have much higher marginal tax rates. Really? Even, Even yeah. higher than ours? Oh, significantly well, so. In the US following World War II, mm. under the Republican president, Eisenhower, mm. he had a top marginal tax bracket of 90%. Basically wow. the idea of, I'm not sure when that kicks in, but mm. after your- Your uh, first 10 million or whatever. Yeah, yeah. How much does that extra dollar actually mean to you? It almost makes going into high earning positions- philanthropic you're effectively at that point you could take pride in the fact that you are supporting 
a well-functioning society. Well, you could do that unless you're sort of a greedy, you know, greedy rich American who just <laughs> wants another Tesla. Yeah, but okay. So what was the the figure? I think is somewhere around seventy six thousand US dollars a year. Anything after that, you're no longer happy. It doesn't. It, or yeah. Not no longer happy. It doesn't bring you anything. Well, again, this is the key thing that beyond a certain point of income, happiness mm. doesn't increase anymore. That's right. It's safety plus able to do things that are just fun. Yeah, is sort of the magic how to describe it formula. Yeah, and the part that constantly gets forgotten in this debate: how much is big going to cost? No. It only costs until people get used to spending. Mm. Then how much consistent economic activity is big going to generate? Mm. If you know that a population always have a minimal income to spend, how much more reliably can you invest in growing your business? Mm. Again, this is where I end up in horrible arguments with economists because <laughs> they want to look at the numbers that exist, not the numbers that will exist after human behavior comes into play. So what really annoys me thus far is I haven't found a decent thing to read on big by a behavioral economist or well, a proper one. Lots of people with some interest, but not someone where it's their bread and butter. Is that the like a background in psychology or? Yeah, essentially. Okay. It's kind of where you marry. It's, it's psychology with maths. Yeah. Psychology and maths. It's funny because your, your mainstream scientists or the joke that goes around is that both economics and psychology are pseudosciences. My favorite uh, thing about <laughs> economics is that it's called the dismal science. The dismal science. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, part of the reason why you haven't seen too many behavioral economists weigh in on it is because that's a very micro focus. That's in focusing on the individual as compared to yeah. big, which is usually seen as a macro problem. But as sure. people like Dan Ariely have said, humans are irrationally predictable. We're in the main irrational in exactly the same ways that can be predicted. So behavioral economics, inability to deal with the macro effectively is really disappointing. Humans are not a mystery. Really, we're not. <laughs> the majority of us are predictable the majority of the time. You know, the outliers are outliers. But as long as you know 90% plus of the system is predictable, which it is, you're going to know what people are going to do with their money. They're going to spend it. What's the consequence of that going to be? Good. <laughs> My favorite graph that I've seen is on a scale of how well, how well we can describe it to how accurately we can predict it is you've got microeconomics down the far left corner, which is we can describe it really well, but we mm. never get it right. Mm. And macroeconomics, which is we are terrible at describing it, but we get it right most of the time. Mm. <laughs> so we can predict it, but we, when we actually break it down, we can't go individual by individual. Mm. There you go. But then we don't need to because individuals are similar enough. So macro's got something right. And you need to marry the two. But going back to David's idea of it's not how much we're going to spend, but how much we're weight. going to generate. Yeah. The estimated cost of child poverty in America is $500 billion. Wow. Okay. And this, these are costs that are based on, like I so said, the, the kid doesn't function society properly and that yep. has multiple. And okay. it, it's more expensive from a healthcare point of view because if you don't have money to take the child to the hospital when the cold's first starting, then that leads on to more costs later, which are more expensive. Yeah, pneumonia and ICU. Mm. Yeah. So it's the idea that you know, there's more crime, there's less education, there's more healthcare spending. When you account for that by giving people the security, it doesn't pay for itself, but there are 
gains that we aren't currently measuring. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that will have to be considered with big. Is big we give you the money, but from that point onwards you pay for everything? Or do you do big in a society also having concluded that basic healthcare and education will be free? Because this is a social decision that then is followed by you know, political moves to make it possible, uh, societies will have to decide what they mean. If it's total freedom, then you give people money and they buy the level of healthcare or whatever else. So people are still going to have to learn to save and have money available. And yeah, again, not a lot of financial literacy in most of the developed world. There's all sorts of issues here about is it just the money or are there other aspects of sort of a good society that have to be rolled in like healthcare and education? And that's the biggest pushback that I've seen from people on the left is that whilst this seems like a good idea that would line up with that, with their way of thinking, the issue is whether or not it gives governments an out to, for want of a better word, as in... Taking responsibility for providing social goods. Yeah, so if you... Well, if it gets to a point where robots are taking a lot of jobs or globalisation has got to the point where we've lost more jobs than we currently have, the idea that giving people an income and then leaving them to do their own thing means that governments aren't responsible for trying to generate you know, skills training I see. and that sort of thing. So there's a worry from people on the left who don't support this that it kind of takes too much onus off of the government to keep trying to make things better for people. But this is the typical left thing of thinking, we have the brains, we can social engineer you. Yeah. Why will we surrender our social engineering? Whereas the right traditionally goes, you are what you are and we can't social engineer you and we don't want to. Both sides are stupid. (laughs) Of course, it's somewhere in the middle. We can encourage people, we can put incentives in front of them, we can put penalties in, but penalties never work as well as incentives. How how effective is it though? How how effective are government schemes in terms of helping people to flourish? Look at the social welfare bill and how little it achieves. <laughs> well, um, the the big argument for this is probably when, if you look back in the nineties in the Clinton government, you had the idea that we can do all of this big international liberalism. So we'll do trade deals and we'll increase our economic capacity by liberalizing. But then don't worry because all those manufacturing jobs, we will retrain you so that you can then become a software engineer. Mm. And again, massive oversimplification, but that's the general idea. That was the general idea. And the anger that you see currently at neoliberal policies and the Clinton way of doing things is that that never happened. Because someone working on the shop floor may not want to work on the shop floor, but they don't want to be told you're going to retrain as a code monkey. So it's it's that thing of once again assuming you know what's best for people, which is in a strange way why the right-wing libertarians, though they seem initially contrarian, are strangely appealing. <laughs> Small state, but the ones who are willing to think are bigger saying, I don't want to interfere with you, but I do want to empower you. Hmm. Whereas the left wants to interfere with you so it can empower you. <laughs> and the right doesn't want to interfere with you, but it's not going to empower you because you're responsible for yourself. So it makes the libertarian right that strange combination, you know, that I want to empower you and I don't want to interfere with you. So in this debate, they they could have a really interesting role if they were more cohesive as a group and you're less rare outside of the US. 
Mm-hmm. And the problem is they're all individuals. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the Spanish <laughs> Civil War. The you know the anarchist brigade, the international brigade, where people were independent, when they could occasionally agree on a plan, they were awesome. The rest of the time, they were hopeless because they couldn't function cohesively. Whereas the traditional left is cohesive because it understands what it wants to do and it does it cohesively. The conservative right is cohesive, knows what it wants to do and how it wants to do it. And in both cases, that limits them from really dealing with change and difference and adaptability. And the big thing with big and the thing that's probably going to make big really difficult when big should be really helpful is people's inability to accept that tomorrow will be different to today and that that's okay that it's scary. Because empowered people with money to spend, historically, wherever they emerge, end up generating a better system eventually. But with getting to that comes the chaos of handing out money and freeing people to make their own decisions. Two things that scare the living proverbial out of most people who like a habitual way of functioning, which mm. is the vast majority of us. So it's the, the, do you think that the, it is... I don't want to say merely, but do you think it is as simple as saying that the change is so vast, that's what's so scary? Well, it's not merely, it's primarily. Primarily, yeah. Because yeah. merely is reducing it, primarily yes. saying it's the first thing. Yeah, it's that thing. Unconsciously, massive change gets our unconscious brain screaming, no. Mm. Yeah, the emotional dog wags the rational tail. <laughs> and then we try and rationally go, why am I scared out of my mind? Don't want to admit I'm scared out of my mind. I'll make a rational argument. Now, in class yesterday, I was getting the students to have a guess at what percent of the activity in their brain is is unconscious versus conscious. And I said, well, okay, how much of your brain is unconscious? And when we finally got to the number where the current estimate is that 97% of what goes on in our brains is unconscious, the class just sat there in silence. Yeah. 3% of what's going on in our heads is conscious. Wow. And this is the problem with big. Big is tapping in at an unconscious level to either make people go, yeah, that'd be awesome, or yeah, that's terrifying. But the rational arguments that come out the other end have already been massively affected by an unconscious emotional response. Mm. So a bunch of economists talking about it try and make it all rational. A bunch of enthusiastic creatives talking about it happily let it all stay emotional and can't explain why or how it'll work. So the biggest problem, it seems to me, with big is you need people to be a bit emotional, a bit rational, and to acknowledge both. And to accept on both sides, we don't know how it ends. But historically, people having more money and more empowerment ends well. Sam, from a macroeconomic perspective, is that supported historically? <laughs> Sorry, big dude, question. big question without yeah. notice. Again, because this is an unprecedented sort of step, this is not... We can't get a direct no, so in, this, indirect but examples. The best example that I've heard of this is the golden period of America. Mm. Post-World War II, 50s, 60s, the golden time that everyone wants to... The Halcyon era. Mm. Yeah. If you look at the economic situation there, it was set up in a way so that the top of the distribution came down the bottom of the distribution went up, so you had mm. high top marginal tax rates and social welfare programs, and then the whole distribution moved up. Mm. And mm. so you had a small... Again, we got a diamond shape, thin point at the bottom, thin point at the top, mm. and a wide bit in the middle. Yeah, and that's when productivity really 
took off and everyone started moving up. And happiness, yeah. and initial happiness studies. So you both have economic productivity and happiness simultaneously. And so it's, you know, from that, whilst it's not giving everyone money, the idea that having more well-off people is better for a society. And more educated people because this is the thing with that period, it's a mixed economy and everyone forgets that. The state intervened in anything it deemed should be done properly for a social good that companies wouldn't do at that level because there wasn't a profit to do it that well. So the mixed economy got out of control and by the mid-70s had to be reined in because it had been poorly managed. And that doesn't say that mixed economies don't run well. In the 50s and 60s, they achieved astounding things and transformed most Western societies. But they've got to be properly managed. So is there a consensus in the economics group society? What's I imagine there wouldn't be, but... Are they, are they arguing about it on the economic side of things as well? There's never a consensus in economics. No. <laughs> if you want a bunch of individuals who can't agree on anything other than they're all economists. <laughs> it's like philosophers. Mm. Yeah. So it really comes down to which school of economics you fall into. So there are the classical economists who kind of believe in the uh, efficient market hypothesis is the idea that stand back, everything will work itself out. It'll mm. be fine. And then there are Keynesians or what Dr. Hale is at the university, the modern monetary theorists, I believe is what they're called, which is the idea that to varying degrees that government spending is good and that government intervention can make up for market failures. What's well, called human history. Yeah. Human history is people with power twist levers to make things happen that either make them more powerful or make their society more stable and prosperous or sometimes both. Mm. And so depending where an economist falls on that and how they do their maths and what assumptions they're making really depends on where they come down on this issue, especially around the costings and that sort of thing. Mm. What texts or who should people be looking up to kind of learn a little bit more about the, the nitty gritty, the four and a half hour explanation? The big one and the popular one at the moment is uh, Rutger Bruggen's book, Utopia for Realists. Utopia for Realists. Which is a great read until he starts talking about open borders, which is where he's going to lose a lot of people after the migration crisis in Europe Mm -hmm. and our constant overstressing about migration here. Although he is, depending when this comes out, he was recently in the news because he went to Davos and... uh, Grenaded them. Yeah, he, he was on a panel and... He said, well, I've been here and heard everyone talking about philanthropy, but I haven't heard anyone talk about tax avoidance. It's being like being at a firefighter convention and not being able to talk about water. <laughs> um, so he's a big proponent of it, and he's got the most recent book. The one that I originally saw was uh, Philip Van Paris, mm-hmm. but there are lots of people. Uh, my economic thinking largely comes from an economist called Mark Blythe. Yeah, who, Mark Blythe is awesome. Yeah. He's He was a stand-up comedian for a time, so he's a very good orator and he's very good at delivering economic ideas in manageable ways. Actually, Sam, do you want to come on again later on and we'll talk about his book, Austerity? I will have to read it, but sure. Okay, because that's like one of my favourite books because it's like, right, we were doing okay and then we got really stupid. Why did we get really stupid? And to go back to the mixed economy idea, he makes the point in his own book, He's the perfect proof of how it works. 
a kid from absolute poverty in Scotland. Free lunches at school, raised by his grandma on the pension, ends up teaching at an Ivy League college in America. He shouldn't have had any opportunities if society didn't decide that a foundation and meritocracy matter. Mm-hmm. And that's where the government spending and the government programs come in. His argument is that the investment in him, the social welfare programs that mm. gave him lunch, the social welfare programs that gave his grandmother enough money to raise him, has then been paid back by his economic contribution. Yeah. Over his lifetime in both tax and also education and yeah. just production and productive capacity, he's more than paid back that investment. And his wonderful comment about austerity, that it's a unicorn with a bag of magic salt, which I love. <laughs> awesome. Do you have any last questions, David? Mm-mm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sam, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All good. And yeah, thank you, David. Thank you, Tim and Sam, and thank you, listeners. We'll catch you next time. It's been Blind Insights. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.